as we celebrate God's greatest sacrifice through His Son, Jesus Christ. All of us at InGrace want to wish you and your family a blessed Easter season. Hi, this is Pastor Jim Scudder Jr., and you're listening to a very special edition of InGrace as we are going to be presenting a program that will help us reflect on the the days that we're in of Good Friday and Easter. Very important days to us as Christians, perhaps, uh, well, for sure, the most important days, because without the resurrection, without the death of Jesus, uh, we would have nothing. We're in the middle of a crisis in our world today, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can conquer death. We can conquer any problems that come our way because we have salvation through faith in Jesus who rose again, and he is the Son of God, just as he said. The death of Jesus gives us assurance that the sins of the world have been paid for. And that salvation is offered to anyone who will simply believe. There's been another crisis going on in my life personally and in the life of our ministry lately, and that is the passing of my dad, Dr. James Scudder Sr., the founder of Victory in Grace Ministries, and we've shortened the name to In Grace. Uh, He was the man that began the vision of broadcasting on television and then radio for many, many years. He retired about three and a half years ago, and he was doing pretty well. He had just written a new book called Lead, and now uh, he suddenly passed away, not of the coronavirus, but of other issues that uh, came along in his life. And, And I had a chance to say goodbye. I had a chance to be with him when he died. And it's hard. It's hard to be with a loved one, especially your dad, when he breathes his last breath. And we didn't say, I love you too often as men. We're too manly to say that, but I knew he loved me. But the last day I spoke with him, the last day he was able to speak, he said, Jim, I love you. He died at sunset. And I remember looking out the hospital window in Florida and I saw the sun going down and it was so beautiful. And then dad stopped breathing and instantly he was absent from the body and present with the Lord. Because the sun rose, my dad lives. The sun set on his life, but his life didn't end. His life actually just began. What we're going to do today is take you on a journey. We're going to take you to Israel And I'm going to be speaking at the spots that the events of the last day of Jesus' life took place. We're going to go through his last day spot by spot. We're also going to, as appropriate, play some beautiful music about these places. You probably have heard Stephanie Zelmer, one of our lead vocalists here in our ministry. She also teaches music at Dayspring Bible College and Seminary. Her and her husband have excellent voices and are used a lot here in music. But she's going to be singing a song today called, I Walked Today Where Jesus Walked. And then we have another song by Brett and Stephanie, and they're going to sing, I've Just Seen Jesus. That's what transformed the poor Apostle Peter from failure to powerful preacher. 
And another song that we're going to hear today is by the choir of the Quentin Road Baptist Church, as well as uh, vocalist John Tanney and Stephanie Zelmer. And they're going to be singing a song, He Loved Me With The Cross. So we don't have to mourn as others that have no hope. If you have believed in Jesus who died and rose again, you will spend eternity with God forever in heaven. That's how I know that I'm going to see my dad again. Enjoy today's special in grace. Welcome to In Grace. I'm Jim Scudder Jr. And today we are above the upper room. We are in Jerusalem here in Israel. What we're going to try to do is give you a glimpse of what the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus would have been like. We're going to start here at the upper room because this is where Jesus and his disciples gathered. This is where they spent the time as he was about to leave and he was building them up and encouraging them. In John 14, Jesus tells them in the room below, well, we'll go into in just a moment. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He gave them great words of encouragement to think about the fact that he's coming back, to think about heaven, and to think about the fact that Jesus was going to go to a place, the cross, to die for our sins. Oh, they still weren't prepared, but Jesus did everything he could here to build up his disciples for a tumultuous time that was about to enter their lives. I think today's program is going to be a huge blessing to you because we're in Israel, we're in Jerusalem, and we're at the very place where our wonderful blessed Savior died for our sins and rose again. You're going to enjoy today's special in grace. This is the traditional location, what's called the upper room. This wouldn't be the original upper room because all of Jerusalem was destroyed, but certainly this is the location. This is near where it would have been. This is a place that a lot of tourists come to see. Why? Because it was significant in the last day of Jesus. They came to Jerusalem. This was just after Palm Sunday. Israel had proclaimed him with palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now he had come, he presented himself to the Jewish people as their Messiah. And now he had arrived, he had come from Bethany to this place, they had found this room, and he was going to come in here and spend some time, the last few moments, to encourage and to teach his disciples. One of those things that he did was he took bread, it says in Mark chapter 14 and verse 22, as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank of it. And he said unto them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it in the kingdom of God. So we have the institution of the Last Supper. Some people think that the communion service, the elements of the communion, the grape juice and the bread is something that will save them. But the Bible doesn't teach that. 
Jesus is saying, this is a picture, this is a representation of me. Take it as often as you need to, to remember him. His death was the sacrifice. His blood was the sacrifice. His body was the sacrifice on the cross coming up the next day. But what a significant moment. And to say the next time we're all gathered together, taking this, it'll be in heaven. It'll be a glorious day when that happens. And then Jesus did the unthinkable. He washes the disciples' feet. Can you imagine the God of all glory, the creator of all things, washing the feet of his disciples? What a lesson to us. Are we greater than our master? We had better be humble and we had better serve people, just as Jesus did. The Bible says that Jesus came into the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been in the upper room. He had been talking to his disciples. This was the last chance for Jesus to communicate with the 12, well now 11. And they came down and they were walking and he was encouraging them and he prays for them. People talk about the Lord's Prayer. It's not the one in where he said, give us this day our daily bread. That is actually a model prayer for us to pray. His prayer was in John 17, and that happened from the upper room down through the Kidron Valley as he was coming into here. He prays for you, he prays for me. It's something you ought to read as soon as you can, John 17, the Lord's Prayer. But he came into this place. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. We're just above it, just below us are the big ancient olive trees. These trees were here, at least the roots were here at the time of Jesus. And so when we touch that tree that's gnarled, that's old, it has been through a lot, just like Jesus Christ, as he was praying here in this garden. Let's go through the story of Gethsemane, the story of the place of the olive press. In Luke chapter 22, in verse 39, we're told that he came with his disciples to a place that he came frequently. He loved this garden. He came here at other times. He loved the peace of it, and I love the peace of it. We're here early in the morning. It's just about six in the morning. The sun's just coming up over the Mount of Olives in a moment. It's peaceful. It's actually cool, which is nice. You can hear the birds chirping. I love the peace of the Garden of Gethsemane. And maybe that's why he came here. Maybe he loved the peace of this place. And it wasn't gonna stay peaceful though, because as they entered this garden, it says in verse 40, and when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. He brought his disciples. He took the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, a little farther apart. He wanted his friends to be with him in his agony. And he went and he knelt down and he began to pray. The Bible says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. 
I'm telling you folks, if you're ever in a time of trial, if you're ever at a time of agony, if you're ever at a moment of decision in life, say those words, not my will, but yours, dear Lord. Do 
This is the epic battle of all the ages. It's happening right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. What is the battle? The battle is between evil and good, between God and the devil. That other garden had another epic battle. That was the Garden of Eden, Adam. I'm related to him and so are you. He lost that battle. He said, not your will, but mine. He rebelled. And because his rebellion, all that have been born of Adam, all related to him, have been born in his rebellion, in his sin, and we're all gonna die. The first death, which is human death. The second death, which is eternal separation from God in hell. But in this garden, another battle was fought to redeem us, where Jesus said, not my will, but thine. He sweat drops of blood, thinking about the wrath of God that would be poured down upon him. All of my sins and yours and all the sins of every person was poured upon Christ on the cross. And he made that human decision here to say, I'm gonna do the will of my Father. He wins the battle. And all those related to him through faith, we are in Christ. All of us have won that battle as well. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ, not in a religion, not in a denomination, not in a religious leader, a priest or a pastor, but in the person and work of Jesus. He fought that battle for you here. Gethsemane means olive press, and he was pressed. And those that were supposed to pray for him, those that were supposed to battle with him in prayer, his friends, the closest, what were they doing? Were they battling with him in prayer? No, they had fallen asleep. We should always fight the battle. We should never neglect prayer. And if Peter maybe had not neglected that here, perhaps he wouldn't have denied the Lord as Jesus had predicted in the upper room. It is so important that we be people of prayer and that prayer will help us when temptation comes to say the words that Jesus said, not my will, but thine. We shouldn't want to do what we want to do because we're human, we're flawed, we're gonna make mistakes, we're gonna sin. So we should say, not my will, but thine. In any prayer, and any time we ask God anything, I hope that that's part of our prayer. Lord, if this is your will, if you say it that way, that's a appropriate prayer. We need to be faithful. We need to be faithful to God in prayer. And here, the Garden of Gethsemane, at the base of these olive trees, Jesus prayed, the battle was fought, and he said, not my will, but thine. He won the victory. He went to the cross the next day. He poured out his blood for you, for me. One thief on the cross next to him believed and was saved that day when he died. He was instantly with the Lord. He wasn't water baptized. He didn't have time to come off the cross and live a good life and go to church. He was saved because he put his faith in Christ. The other one mocked Christ and died and went to the place of torment. You have that same decision. The battle was fought and won for you here, but what you have to do now is receive the gift of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the pathway that they would have led Jesus from Gethsemane up to Caiaphas' house. And if this was the place, which I kind of believe it is, then this was the place in which we're about to read this event took place. It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 54, then they took him. They took him over in the garden of Gethsemane. 
the temple would have stood just over here. And then just beyond that was the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane on that western face of that mountain. And they led him likely, if this is that old Roman road, which it looks like it is, and these are old Roman steps, then he would have come right through here with the soldiers, with those that had arrested him. And they took him and brought him into the high priest's house. There's evidence that this was the high priest's house. He was brought before the high priest and he was questioned that night in which he was first arrested. And Peter followed afar off. The Bible talks about pride, being careful about pride because the fall is coming. So Peter follows afar off and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, they sat down and, and Peter sat with them. So now they're in this situation, maybe it was just right here, that little fire was happening. Some people had gathered around the fire. Jesus was off in the distance, but was part of the scene. And a certain maid beheld him, mean Peter, as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him. Have you ever found your, uh, yourself sitting somewhere or standing somewhere and someone's staring at you? And that could be good or bad. It's bad if you've done something wrong, but he got that feeling. Uh-oh, she's staring intently. And then she said, this man was also with him. She recognized him. He's one of the disciples. And he denied him saying, woman, I know him not. Can you imagine this big, tough fisherman, leather-necked, been out in the sun his whole life, afraid of a little girl? Well, he denied the Lord one time. You think somewhere he would have remembered Jesus' words that you're gonna deny me three times. Well, what happened next? After a little while, another saw him and said, thou art one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not the second denial. After the space of an hour, another confidently affirmed saying, of a truth, this fellow also was with him for he is a Galilean, his accent gave him away. And Peter said, man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he spake, the cock crew. Now we have the third denial of Peter of Jesus. I wonder if Peter had obeyed the Lord in Gethsemane when the Lord said, pray with me, bring your mental acuity, your heart to my aid. I'm in the, the toughest moment of my life. This is where all of history is pointing to this battle in the garden of Gethsemane. Be with me here. And he fell asleep. If he hadn't done that, if he hadn't fallen asleep, if he had been earnestly praying, if he had seen the war that was going on, the spiritual war, maybe he wouldn't have denied the Lord here. I'm not sure, but I know one thing, when we do what God says, things work out a whole lot better. And as he yet spake, the cock crew. He heard that sound and it had to have gone right through him for that's what Jesus had predicted. How did Jesus know? Did Jesus cause him to deny him three times? No, but Jesus knows what's gonna happen next. Jesus knows what our decisions will be. That doesn't mean he causes our decisions. It means that he has foreknowledge of them. He predicted this and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. So maybe up in the distance, the Lord was sitting bound, 
awaiting the next phase of whatever the trial or the punishment was going to be. And he was looking on the scene and he was looking at Peter and Peter denied him the third time and the cock crew and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Oh, what that must have felt like for the eyes of Jesus to be gazing upon him as we fail the Lord. Is there any chance? Is there any hope of restoration? Can Peter ever possibly serve God again? Probably not. He probably thought, well, it's over for me. There's no way God can forgive this one. Aren't you glad salvation isn't based upon our works, our faithfulness? It's depending upon our faith in the one who is perfect and faithful. And once you've trusted in him, you have eternal life. And we're still going to blow it. We're going to fail him. But we're going to find later in scripture that Peter was restored three times. Up back in his old stomping grounds, the place where he was most comfortable at, He'd probably returned to fishing because he probably thought he could never fish for men anymore. But Jesus met him up there after the resurrection and restored him not once or twice, but three times. God is so good. God is so gracious. This is the spot where Peter preached so boldly the gospel on Pentecost. And thousands that were gathered here in Jerusalem on Mount Zion heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and got saved. This change that Peter went from coward to a powerful preacher, what can explain that? The only thing that can explain that, my friends, is he saw the resurrected Jesus. He's alive. He died for your sins on a cross and he rose again the third day. And if you'll simply believe in him, you shall not perish but have everlasting life. Those are Jesus' words. If he died and rose again, he took upon himself your sins, you can believe him when he says, Believe in him and you will have eternal life. Most people say there's no way that can be that simple. Here's the truth. That's what the Bible says. And I hope today you have received the gift of eternal life. It is finished, he said We had watched as his life ebbed away Then we all stood around Till the guards took him down Joseph begged for his body that day It was late afternoon when we got to the tomb, wrapped his body and sealed up the grave. So I know how you feel, his death was so real, but please listen and hear what I
His voice she first heard Those kind, gentle words Asking what was her reason for tears And I sobbed in despair My Lord is not there He said, child, it is I, I am he This is the traditional location, what's called the Upper Room. He had come from Bethany to this place. They had found this room, and he was going to come in here and spend some time, the last few moments, to encourage and to teach his disciples. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. We're just above it, just below us are the big ancient olive trees. These trees were here, at least the roots were here, at the time of Jesus. And so when we touch that tree that's gnarled, that's old, it has been through a lot, just like Jesus Christ, as he was praying here in this garden, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. 
This is the epic battle of all the ages. It's happening right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the pathway that they would have led Jesus from Gethsemane up to Caiaphas' house. This was the actual Roman pathway that they would have taken. And after this trial, Jesus was lowered into a dark pit. This very well could have been the pit that Jesus was in, the night in which he's betrayed, arrested in Gethsemane, brought up to the house of the high priest. We're in the house that is known as St. Peter in Galicantu. Galicantu means the cock crew. In this place, this is where Peter denied the Lord. And Jesus looked at Peter. And then Jesus put into a pit for the night. And we read about a pit in Psalm 88. And it sounds like Jesus here in this pit, in the darkness, alone, isolated. The Son of God, the God that created this rock, is now imprisoned by his creatures. He came willingly. He was arrested. He was brought here innocent. He came because he said, not my will, but thine. It says in Psalm 88, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of trouble. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength. But I have cried unto the Lord in the morning. Shall my prayer prevent thee? Lord, why canst thou off my soul? Why hiddest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness. It's so hard for me to imagine the soul of the Lord in despair, in darkness, in a dungeon, alone. But really, because he went through this, no matter what pit you feel like you're in, it's gonna be okay because he was here for you. He is now standing with you. If you're in that place of despair, that place of darkness, and you feel alone and your friends are far from you, your friend is with you. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you've put your complete trust in Him, He's with you no matter what, no matter where you go. There's a wonderful comfort in knowing that Jesus took our dungeon, our darkness, our isolation here in this pit for us. He cried out to the Father, and because of his cry, God heard his cry. Sure, the next day, he would be hanging on a cross. He did that, he did this for you.
As we retrace the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, we are at the Garden of Gethsemane. We are at Caiaphas' house. Now it's in the morning. They're gonna bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. He's the authority of Rome here in Jerusalem. And we believe that this courtyard right here that we're walking into is the actual courtyard where they would have tried Jesus before the Roman authorities. Can you imagine the, the mob incited by the Jewish leaders? Can you imagine them inciting the, the people that Jesus was guilty? Can you imagine Pontius Pilate saying, I can release a prisoner. Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And they said, crucify Jesus. It's just unbelievable that Jesus did this for us here at this place. And as we approach, you can see the bedrock that leads up into what looks like just a solid wall, which it is. But remember, the walls that you see, most of them in the city of Jerusalem, the old city walls, are from the time of the Ottomans. So about 400 years ago, after Jesus died, he had predicted that the whole city would be destroyed. So all of these walls were destroyed. But there are some things that still remain, like this bedrock, and you see the steps carved out. We see three steps. These steps lead up into the palace of Herod, and that's where Pontius Pilate's Praetorium would have been. And that's where he would have stood, facing the crowd, Jesus on these steps, facing Pilate. And Pilate says, I'm gonna take your life from you. And Jesus says, no, no person has the authority to take my life. And he turned to the people. Jesus looked on the people and we can just imagine what this scene would have looked like. Can you imagine Jesus giving himself willingly to be scourged, to be whipped, to be placed a crown of thorns on his head, to be beaten, to be mocked, led from this place, let him be crucified to Calvary, to die for my sins, to die for your sins. This is Golgotha, the place of the skull. We don't know conclusively that this is the site of the crucifixion, but I really believe that this is the place because some years ago, several people were looking at this escarpment, this quarry, this rock face from the city wall of Jerusalem, which is right there. And they noticed this hillside looked like a skull. And since then, they've raised the base for a parking lot for a bus station. So they've closed off where the mouth was. The nose fell off a few years ago, but you can still see the eye sockets. And I believe this is where, at the base of this hill, the three crosses would have stood. Jesus in the middle, the two thieves on the side. Can you imagine Jesus coming from his trial, walking, carrying his cross, being beaten, being whipped, pieces of leather with glass and metal, whipping him, pulling out the flesh. His back had to just be in almost just hanging in shreds. He had a crown of thorns thrust down onto his head, blood pouring down his face. Why was he allowing people to spit on him and to hit him? And you know what he said? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The cross separates Christianity from all religions. 
because the cross is all about forgiveness and grace. The cross is God's love poured out as his blood was pouring out, as he was hanging there. He even thought of his mom. He had made sure that she was taken care of. His thoughts were about other people at the hardest point in his life as he was separated from the unity of the Father. That had never happened. Sin was placed upon Jesus here at Calvary. We have a lot of songs about Calvary. We need to continue to sing about Calvary. We need to be, continue to preach about the cross, the death of Christ for our sins. He did it for you. He did it for me. Remember the cross. If you've already received salvation through faith in Jesus, the cross should come every time to your mind as something wonderful and something new, and, and it should bring tears to your eyes every time to remember what he did for you. If you've never received the salvation that Jesus Christ is offering, that he bought here at the cross, you need to receive that today because he loved you enough to die for you on the cross. He left his throne in heaven to come to To see 
And as my guilt was placed upon him, I know that somehow, somehow he saw me. He loved me with a cross. He loved me with a cross. In answer to the call. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, men of means, men of authority, went to Pilate asking for the body. That was a big ask, but because of their stature, a common person wouldn't have had that permission, but because of their position, they were able to take the body. Jesus' body would have just been thrown into a heap and animals would likely have eaten it. No, that wasn't good. Jesus' body needed to be respected and they took it down and they cleaned it up, probably bringing him along a path like this in this garden. And they wrapped him and they put some spices on him. They didn't have a lot of time. And they put him in a tomb, a tomb of a rich man, a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And here in this garden, just a few feet away from Golgotha is a tomb. The tomb has a track for a stone. And here we find 
a perfect tomb just as it had been predicted. Very likely this could have been the tomb of Jesus. The tomb. Here in the garden, there was a tomb of a rich man. And here we have the tomb of a rich man. There were some benches in here where the body would have been laid. There's a cross from the Byzantine era. These were the Crusaders. They recognized this place as Jesus Christ, Alpha, Omega. What a holy place, but we don't worship a spot. We worship a risen Savior, and he's with us all the time. I still love coming here because it reminds me that we have something so special and unique. No religion has this. Only the truth has an empty tomb. What an appropriate place it is to end our last 24 hours of Jesus because his life didn't end at Golgotha, at Calvary, at the Hill of the Skull. His body was brought to this tomb. He was laid here by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They had an act of compassion. The fact that they touched a dead man's body, these were men of means, these were men of prestige but they brought the body, they touched a dead body, they now could not take part in the Passover. But they did it because they loved Jesus Christ. And they brought his body, they washed his body, they prepared it hastily because the sun was going down, and they placed him in this tomb, very likely this very tomb. Everything matches, it has a place for a stone to roll across, the Roman soldiers would have been stationed out here, and there Jesus' body lay for three days and three nights. Most religions, you can go and see a tomb, a place where the bones are at. The disciples didn't come back here because they saw a risen Savior. Christianity doesn't have a tomb with bones. Christianity has an empty tomb. That's what makes it so unique and so different and true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If he rose again, it's all true. This tomb is empty. I serve a risen Savior. I know he's alive because he's affected me in a powerful way, and he can do the same for you. His salvation is offered to you as a free gift. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The message that I just shared with you from John 3:16 is a message from God to you. Jesus died for your sins. If you were the only one alive, he would have died for you and suffered for you. Let this be all of us. Let this be our sin. Our sin separates us from a God who is holy and perfect. Jesus loved us so much, he came to be sin for us. He died on that cross. He took our sin upon himself so that we by faith could have everlasting life trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty, he is risen, as he said. It's a glorious fact of the Bible, it's a glorious fact of Christianity, it's a glorious fact of history. Receive him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved for all eternity.